No energy? Always fatigued? Has your got up and go got up and went? Primrose Leafs Pro Max 365 helps to produce natural energy, increase endurance and stamina, improve performance during exercise, reduce pain from fibromyalgia, and is excellent for cardiovascular support. A doctor-designed, deliciously berry-flavored formula that's great for ages 18 to 99. Order Pro Max 365 and get the natural energy you've always wanted. Call 844-376-0007. Refuel daily with Pro Max 365 and get your life back. Pat Boone, legendary American singer, actor, and television personality who rose to fame in the 1950s after winning TV's first National Talent Contest. He is known for starring roles in over a dozen major Hollywood studio films, such as April Love and State Fair, and more recently, The Mulligan, for which Pat just took home the Grace Award for Most Uplifting Performance in Movies at the Movie Guide Awards in Hollywood. Now celebrating the 70th anniversary of his career in show business, Pat is the weekly host of his own SiriusXM radio show, The Pat Boone Hour, and is continuing a book tour promoting If, the eternal choice we all must make. His 28th, by the way. And he has sold over 45 million records worldwide and has 38 top 40 hits and is reconnecting with his Nashville roots with his new True Blue Country novelty song, Grits. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome the icon, the legend, the entertainer, Mr. Show Business himself, Pat Boone, everyone. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tired. <laughs> Just listening to the introduction. And I actually lived all of that. Wow. And I'm still living it. And um, somehow people wonder at my age, which I can say is 88. I'll be 89 in about five weeks, three weeks, be 89. But I'm, I'm still playing singles tennis. I play I played basketball for a number of years and into my 80s um, and and I golf I'm host I hosted a golf tournament a week ago in Georgia uh, and played 80, 18 holes of golf and I'm still recording and, and I, I can't quit I tell people I I can't quit well of course I think the fact that I've got too much on my docket I've got to live long enough to keep doing that <laughs> and, and to get that finished and well, so I think I that's think. great. I think that's great to have a schedule and just keep moving on because, you know, they always say if you don't move it, you're going to lose it. And exactly. you still have vision. My granddad used to tell me that. And he and he had more than one meaning. He was a salty old fella. He said, but if you don't lose it, you'll use it. And you'll lose it. <laughs> if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Jeez, I even made a glitch myself. <laughs> well, you know, I knew that you were a tennis player, and then you just mentioned golf. And I, if I remember correctly, way back in the day, probably back, I think it was probably the 70s, uh, you know, there used to be those tennis pro-ams where celebrities like yourself would team up with a tennis pro and, and play before a lot of crowds in different areas of the U.S. And I remember those. Uh, how about you? Oh, of course I do. Yeah, I mean, I love those things. I mean, they always roll out the red carpet. And the idea, the uh, the opportunity to play with people like John Newcomb and, uh, and, and McEnroe when he was just starting. And I played opposite him. And I think I had Don Newcomb or one or two of the other greats as my partner. And he had somebody else, uh, an amateur partner. Oh, I think it was Kenny Rogers he had as his partner. And I and my partner defeated John Newcomb, and he was very surly because he, he, that was part of his image. He was just going pro at that time, and I thought, well, he's not going to last long because he's, you know, he, he's not likable. Well, he turned out to be not only likable but winnable, and then even, even his, his uh, you got to be kidding and other things. Uh, you know, became trademarks and, and he became the most irascible, but now he's uh, a kinder, older guy. But I, I am, I'll always treasure this moment. We played in a an off camera game waiting for a tournament thing to happen. I mean, our, our time wasn't yet. So I was on one court on one side and he was on the other. And of course, he didn't. He took great pleasure in serving his left-handed serves right where I couldn't even reach them, much less return them. But at one point, I did return one, and 
and it turned out to be a lob over his head and he went running back to try to hit it between his legs backwards and it hit the net it didn't come over so i held the distinction of having lobbed at least one point over john McEnroe. <laughs> Hey, there you, you know, that's real. That's, that's almost worth a, a U.S. Open trophy or maybe Wimbledon a little bit. Yeah, at least an honorable mention. Hey, there you go. Well, let's talk about this amazing brand new single, Grits. What's the inspiration behind the song? Well, Grits, of course, is, uh, is a famous, a Quaker Oats make it and it's corn and like mashed potatoes, but it's actually ground up little bits of corn. The movie, uh, Cousin Vinny from way back, uh, which the actor said, what is a grit? Well, <laughs> a grit is one tiny little uh, piece of corn, all of it crunched up together and makes something like mashed potatoes. And it's a, a country staple here in America. Now it's growing across the nation. Shrimp and grits is on the in some of the ritziest restaurants. But I, but listen, Ward, I had, this came to me in a dream. I mean, I've eaten grits all my life. I am from the country and uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And grits was, I loved it always. Ham and, used to ham and eggs and grits. But uh, I, I dreamed this. It literally was a dream. It came to me in this very vivid dream. And I don't remember having many vivid dreams. But this one, I was being complimented on having a country hit record. And I was singing a little of it in my dream. But then that little voice happens. I think this may be a dream. And then it, then as soon as that happens, you know, the dream fades. And then you try trying to hold on to whatever it was. You don't want to let it go, but it's gone. But I came out of that dream with this first verse. Grits, grits, bestest food there is. Country caviar, Tennessee foie gras. Grits, grits, bestest food there is. Keep your fancy food. Give me my grits. And I make fun of escargot. Them snails have got to go. Uh, pate, what is that anyway? Who, what's that smelly cheese? Hey, you can cram that, please. Give me my grits. All the stuff that's served in fancy doings, uh, you know, uh, and, and as um, hors d'oeuvres. Well, we, <laughs> I, I guarantee that the, 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 my definition of grits as Tennessee foie gras uh, and um, country caviar. Those two words were never in a country song before, never probably will be again, but they're immortalized in my song Grits and it's fun, it's contagious, it's memorable and it's lighthearted. And it's something that all country people and a lot of people that don't consider themselves country people love grits as in the morning or whenever they eat it and uh and the, so we we've done two videos that are yet to be seen about to be seen i don't know if one of them is seen on my uh facebook page is the is the there is a visual yeah i saw a, a short visual yeah called. yeah it's, I saw it's, it's, short. Sort of, it's sort of aimed at kids because it borrows from sesame street but now we've just finished this last week about four days ago one in nashville which borrows from our big country hit show from years ago called Hee Haw. And uh, we recreate the set, the cornfield set, where some of us pop up and out of the corn. And, and we do a, a line dance, a special line dance called the Grits Line Dance. And I mean, we're making a big deal of it. And, uh, and we're getting tremendous response from it now on Spotify. I just got the latest word from Spotify. What is it? Oh, did I tell you already? Uh, to, uh, two million uh, monthly so, listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did tell you. I, I forget who I told what now because <laughs> I'm doing so many of these interviews. And I'm glad because uh, nobody's been wanting to hear from me for a while. Oh, I and, wouldn't uh, say that. I wouldn't say that well, at all. I mean, think well, about it. Unless, What do you think? If you're 88 years old and you're getting two million listeners a month. That has got to feel good. And it's growing, it's growing like, it's really, it's really skyrocketing. That happened almost overnight because of grits and because of a couple other things I've done recently. I redid a song of Enya's Only Time. Do, do you know that beautiful, that, that uh, 
almost, um, almost it's like been a, a while visionary Enya. it was a huge international hit sold millions and i loved that song and i looked up the lyric because i couldn't understand what she was saying she was not careful to pronounce the wording and i didn't know it was a four-part story song about love maybe happening will it last only time uh, uh oh it's coming apart is it gonna is it gonna go away only time will tell now am i ever going to find the right one only time and finally the fourth verse could this be the one well now the lyric that i sing i'm the only male version of that song which sounds very much like enya's song intentionally but it's the male version and you can understand the lyric and that too is getting picked up on spotify spotify the male version of of that then i recently did one with ann margaret from an album that's just coming out of duets that she's done with other singers. And she had me sing, uh, Teach Me Tonight. Now we're two octogenarians and she's asking me, uh, still sexy at 82 or whatever, teach me tonight. And I said, well, what is it? And I, I, I have to treat it humorously, though I sing part of it, but also what is it you have in mind? <laughs> he said, starting with the A, a, B, C of it. Oh, you want to go right to the beginning, uh, right down to the X, Y, Z of it. Oh, you want the whole course. And we're, I'm sort of making humorous fun of the fact that we two 80-year-olds, one's asking the other to teach me something. What is it you want me to teach you? But it is in its own way romantic. And it reminded me of a movie uh, called The Notebook. And I don't know if you ever saw Oh, yeah. Garner. Yeah, James Garner. Oh, what an incredible story. And I'd read the book first and cried over that. Then I cried over the movie about two octogenarians who found each other at the last. And one was, you know, slipping into uh, Alzheimer's. And she didn't remember sometimes who this good-looking older guy was. But he remembered. And he... I'll get emotional because um, I wrote a song about that too called called You and I. And he remembered and his memory was enough except that one moment when she suddenly was lucid and quiet. And she says, that was us, wasn't it? And he said, yes, honey, it was. I, I think Ooh, The Notebook is I, probably one of the most beautiful love stories in film. And I'm telling you, this Anne Margaret record um, that I've made with her, which is just coming out on a label called Cleopatra, though I treated it with humor, it, it also, I'm emotional about it because it talks about the real romance. It doesn't have to all be physical. In fact, more, more importantly, much more importantly, it needs to be affairs of the heart and the soul and the whole being. And 80-year-olds... And are capable of that, as I just demonstrated. <laughs> well, you know, love Dying, never but, ends. Love right, never ends, does. and and I oh, think it, it doesn't matter what age you are. And and I and I, you know, it's great to hear that you did a duet with Anne Margaret because I know that with her album, uh, she sings with a lot of incredible singers, and uh, yeah. and I know that her that album alone, and it's been my gosh, how many years has it been since she's put an album out? Oh, you'd have to ask her, but I, I'm not aware of any in the last 30 years. Yeah. And of course, I've kept on putting out albums. I mean, the, the, my next album is a unique, not one of a kind album, which I am going to be disappointed if it doesn't get country album of the year because it's 25 million selling hits in one album, all sung by the same person. Over the years in all of my recording, I've, I'm a country boy and I, and I grew up in Nashville and I kept recording country hits by all the artists and the songs that I loved and my albums. So now it's an album of 21 million selling hits by Hank Williams, George Jones, Merle Haggard, on and on and on. Uh, Tennessee Waltz for Pete's sake. I mean, I grew up in Tennessee and that was a huge hit by Patti Page and uh, others. But I've, I've got 21, 25 major million-selling hits in one album, all sung by the same guy. And if that doesn't get at least a nomination for album of the year for country music, uh, and they'll finally maybe 
I'm in the in the rock and I'm not in the rock and roll hall of fame. I'm in the gospel music hall of fame. The rock and roll hall of fame disqualified me because I've recorded so many other songs, 2,600 songs, and so and a lot of them weren't rock and roll. So how can I be in the rock and roll? Hall of fame? <laughs> well, I think Dolly, I think Dolly Parton was asking the same question: How in the world did she and get inducted? Odetta. How about Odetta? Yeah, so you know, you <laughs> you deserve to be there. Yeah. In fact, even when was Paul Simon rock and roll? And when was, <laughs> you know, uh, many of the others, they, they had music with great beats, but it wasn't out and out rock and roll. My, tutti, my version of Tutti Fruity and Ain't That a Shame and Crazy Little Mama Comma, knocking, knocking at my front door, 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 qualify as real rock and roll. But, uh, but, but no, I, I disqualified by getting in the gospel music hall of fame but i might get in the country music hall of fame now well i think you deserve i think you deserve to be there and especially with your new single grits you collaborated with the gatlin brothers uh larry yeah. stevens Lori morgan even deborah allen i mean what was that like to bring those people together well it was it it was a homecoming for one thing because i am a nashville guy and and many of them have a have come to Nashville. Uh, let's see. You, you. It, it was Ray Stevens and uh, and uh, and then uh, Roger Miller's son Dean sings with me, and Laurie Morgan and and uh, uh, Marianne Deborah Allen, and I'm, I'm I'm leaving out a couple. Gatlin, did I say Gatlin brothers? Yes. All of them. All these, and then with the great country music uh, musicians, all of them, all having a hilarious good time together. And, and I got a great compliment during that time because Roger Miller, who wrote Dang Me in Westminster Cathedral and, and uh, King of the Road, he had a way with words and music that was unique. And I, I really, when Dean, his son, singing with me on this record, said, you know, I can, I can hear my daddy writing this song. Grits, grits, bestest food there it's, the way he played with <laughs> words. And, um, but he was a wordsmith and a songsmith uh, non-pareil. Uh, but wow, I uh, to get that compliment from Roger Miller's son while we were recording. And now I just think I just think it's going to be a big hit. I, I do too, and and I I, I agree with Dean. I, I could hear Roger Miller actually doing a song like that. Yeah. So yeah, I think you've hit a grand slam with this single. How about that? How about that rhyme? And the definition country caviar, Tennessee foie gras, rather sophisticated for a down-home country food. <laughs> <laughs> well, for you, Pat, what would you say is your biggest memory in your 70 years of show business? Oh, my gosh. Oof, I mean, you know, the first and second um, appearances with the Queen, of course, and the Royal Command performances, I told you about that, didn't I? No, uh. I told that, and oh, I haven't told you about that. No, tell one me. Was the, one, one was the most you'd think would be the standout moment. One was the most embarrassing moment of my life, and and one was the first time <laughs> with the Queen and the royal family. I was still in college at Columbia University, but I was having these rock and roll hits, just one after the other, and here I am still in college, and I and at Columbia University in New York and, and invited to come be part of a Royal Command performance. And I, I remember Rex Harrison and many others were part of that one. And I was a newcomer and singing rock and roll and, and caution, be aware that when you're singing in you know, the Royal Box, the Royal Family, the eyes of the audience are always on the Queen. And if she gives it lots of applause, then you know you're having a hit. If she just is tippy-toe polite, then you, you, you can know that uh, you, she wasn't particularly fond of what you just did. Well, I got lots of this, particularly from, Aunt, from Princess Anne and Princess Margaret, but even the Queen. So now she's standing in front of me in the, in the uh, afterwards when she comes down, the, runs the gauntlet, as I thought of it, of all the performers thanking them for their performance. And I was tipped on what to do just bow. I don't curtsy. The girls curtsy, but but I bow my head, Your Majesty. And if she extends her hand, you take it. 
and whatever she says you respond to and it was very cordial and wonderful and I must say the two princesses I could tell they were fans already and uh, and so that was great that was in 1957 I think and uh, but then several years go by and I'm invited to another one well I don't think she's ever going to remember that how many times does she do that and how many people, actresses and actors and entertainers, does she meet? She's always cordial, of course. And I knew what to do. I was standing between Peter Sellers and Peter Finch and Claudia Cardinal on this side, and everybody nervous because here comes the queen. I thought, hey, I've done this before. I just bow, your majesty. And if she extends her hand, I take it. If she says something, great. But I'm, I, I confess, I was feeling fluttery as she got next to, to uh, uh, Peter Finch on this side. And now she's in front of me, comes up to about here on me, and there she is, and she says, we met before. I said, we did? I, I, I mean, you, you remember that? And, uh, and she says, of course. It was, and and she, she laughed. She says, it's a royal command performance. And, uh, and like she had to explain where it was we met. And I, as a picture, I think, on the London Times the next day of, of her had going to Claudia Cardinal on my right and her left, and they're both laughing at something. Well, guess what they're laughing at? They, what they just heard me say when she said, we met before. And I'm standing there looking stunned as I was. Did I just say we did to the Queen of England? And uh, I mean, how, how gauche can you be? Yeah, but it was and, so cool for her to actually remember that moment. It was, and I didn't anticipate that. I thought this would be like the first time we ever met. Uh, even though it was second for me, she wouldn't remember. But she startled me. We met before. Well, I've heard that she has always had a very sharp memory. And she gets briefed, too. But, but I know that at least she was impressed that first time because her, her daughters were 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 enthused, you know, about me singing Ain't That a Shame and Tutti Fruity if I'd already sung it. Wop, bop, a loo, mop, bop, 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 Tutti Fruity. I mean, they loved it all. You know, it was, it was all the rage. And I performed at the Palladium since then uh, at other times and very memorable times for British audiences that uh, really moved me to tears because of their memory and warm welcomes of things that it were by then had gone by years and years before. Well, you know, you're, you know, Pat, you're, you are an American legend. Um, you're an American icon. I mean, you, you are now part of American history, American film history, American music history. I mean, what is that like? It's a total ongoing surprise that I, <laughs> I find difficult to assess, really. Uh, I, I was just on a cruise in the in the Caribbean. Um, what's the Caribbean? It was the Caribbean, wasn't it? <laughs> anyway, a Disney cruise, and it was a Turner Music Classic, hosted by Ben Mankiewicz and others, and and having people like um, uh, Chevy Chase and uh, Richard Dreyfuss and others, and uh, all on to talk about films that we had made that are considered classic films. So they picked out two of my films as classic films, State Fair, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, and A Journey to the Center of the Earth, which was a science fiction, huge hit all over the world. And uh, they tried to make a follow-up to it with computer graphics. It was nothing like the original. But the, my version of that Jules Verne classic is a classic film. And so was State Fair, R Richard Rogers, Hammerstein had passed, but Rogers wrote a new song for me to sing called Willing and Eager in that film. And for me to have a new song by Richard Rogers to introduce and, and to do that film and sing it to Anne Margaret while she played tic-tac-toe on my bare chest in a, in, a, in, a, in a motel room in the film, it didn't go to anything specific, but but it was very romantic and it did end up in my first real uh, movie kiss. But now I, we, we, we showed that film, they showed that film on the cruise. And I'd already done my interview with Ben Mankiewicz about filming it, which included a drunk scene and a crying scene, which I didn't remember. 
because when I go back, I think I, I think I'll get some popcorn and watch this film myself. And it's no more than 10 minutes into the film when I realized I never saw that film. <laughs> I never had seen that movie State Fair because I went right from that into the next film and the next and the next. And I never, I saw clips, but I'd never seen the whole film. And I sat back there with my popcorn and I watched the whole thing. And uh, I saw myself uh, in a drunk scene coming because I'd just been jilted by the Anne Margaret character and coming back to my father, Tom Ewell, and, and walking into the trailer uh, that we're gonna, there are families staying in at the World Fair, I mean the State Fair. And it's clear that I'm loaded and my father puts his arm around my shoulder and I say, I bet you think I've been drinking. And he said, yes, I suspected you. <laughs> and then I said, it was awful, Dad, and I start crying. And he takes me, puts me to bed and takes all my clothes except my shorts off and tells me that it's okay, you know, you'll get over this and you won't even remember her eventually. Oh, I'll never forget her, Dad. And, uh, and that was in the movie. I saw it for the first time just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, on this Disney cruise. So all of this, these things, you say a legend, um, I guess that simply, uh, simply looking at the age and the exploits and the, the records that have been broken, for instance, the most records by any living artist, any record artist ever, so that the record, what is it, NAM, that's new, that's the thing I just did the interview with, NAM, that's... Oh, NAM, NAM convention. NAM, but what's it stand for? National Associate Music Music Manufacturers. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've been the NAM in L.A., so yeah, I know what that is. Well, they were astonished, uh, as I am, to know that I am the most recorded single artist in history over my, my idols, Sinatra, and, uh, and not not in terms of volume of sales, but in terms of the number of actual songs I have recorded is, is historic. And I don't think anybody will ever touch it because Bing Crosby and Sinatra, they weren't into country. They certainly were not into rock and roll. Uh, they were not into gospel. And I did some, and they were not into hard rock, heavy metal. <laughs> You may be well, familiar with that. Well, you know, that's funny because I was because I was going to ask you about that because I remember when you appeared in that heavy metal outfit many years ago. I mean, yep. did you think at that time that you were going to get canceled back then for that? No, no, I anticipated there would be controversy. Really? Because I was doing heavy metal and I was not a fan of heavy metal or the heavy metal lifestyle at all until I was in England. And my musicians, and we were on tour, and they said, you know, we enjoy playing all your old hits, and the fans love them, but why don't we go in and do something new? And I said, well, what can I do? I haven't done 10 times already. I've done gospel and pop and rock and roll, and and and, um, and all. I've even done two a cappella albums with no instrumental music at all, with, with vocal choruses. If you don't sing well in, in an a cappella album, you better not do it. So I had done two albums right like that, but I said, well, they said, well, you never did a heavy metal album. And I said, and we laughed at the idea of me doing a heavy metal album. I even pictured myself in chartreuse socks and, and a red lightning stripe through my hair and uh, you know, a, a, an album cover of Pat Boone, heavy metal. But we were just joking about it. When are we gonna do our heavy metal album? But then my conductor, Dave Siebel's, a ranger conductor said, you know, we've been joking about it, but there's some good songs underneath all the noise that we could do a different way. I said, like what? Big band jazz, he said. Oh, big band jazz. I'd met, I had done big band swing jazz albums that had been hits earlier. So I said, great, big band swing, you show me some songs. And they started playing me some of the songs, Smoke on the Water, and even Stairway to Heaven, which was not heavy metal, but they were the precursors like Jimi Hendrix, Wind Cried Mary. But then uh, um, the Nazareth song, um, oh gosh. Was that Love Hurts? Yeah, Love Hurts, Love Hurts. But then, you know, Long Way to the Top, if you want to rock and roll, and Paradise City, Guns and Roses. I mean, this really was 
hard rock stuffs and smoke on the water. Bum 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 bum, and and all of that, and then Crazy Train, Ozzy Osbourne, doing all of these songs. But I, when I heard Ozzy's song and looked at the lyric, I thought this is real valid social commentary. How hard it is for young people to look at all the hypocrisy, double standards, failed promises, all this. They're running off the rails on a crazy train. And and even even um, uh, Stairway to Heaven, I knew Jimmy Page was reputed to be and evidently was in witchcraft, but I checked all the lyrics. I didn't hear one lyric at all, except at the very end, which was not witchcraft probably, but it said when uh, when the three and when when all is one and one is all is the last words in, in that and that sounded like a what's sometimes called a, it's a theological idea that we'll all we'll all get to heaven anyway all will be forgiven and we'll all wind up in heaven and i didn't like that lyric so i changed it to when the three in one is all in all when the three part jehovah is is all in all i, I and, and I never heard from Jimmy Page or anybody. They didn't mind it. I changed those words from uh, when all is all. No. All well, let, let me ask you this, because you're a man of faith. Was it hard to hold on to your faith in Christ through all of these decades, through being in Hollywood, being in the music business? Uh, just seeing the multiple changes, people in and out. I mean, was it hard to hold on to your faith to all of that? No, no, it sure wasn't. And it's a blessing because when I first hit, and it was a total shock and surprise to have a rock and roll record and it become a million seller and the next a million selling number one, all this was happening where I was intending to be a teacher preacher. And my, my, my focus wanted was I wanted to influence young people in classes, in college classes and, and or high school even, uh, to, to lead good lives because I was a Christian and I thought that's the best. I mean, I could depend on that as a career. I couldn't depend on a music career. That was foolish. That was not going to happen. But when it happened, and it happened so surprisingly and out of the blue, I knew that this was being given to me, provided by the one I call my agent. I told young people when they say, how can I get ahead in showbiz? I said, make God your agent because he was my agent. He opened doors for me that that I couldn't have imagined. But like an, a good agent, he helped me make take advantage of the opportunity and make the most of it. By the way, don't forget, all good agents expect at least 10 percent. <laughs> the tithe. God so does all, too. <laughs> yeah, and my whole career was I was aware that I was being given these opportunities for a purpose. So while I was still in college at Columbia University, after I'd already met the Queen the first time, I was asked to write a book of advice for teenagers, moral advice. I chose a title which the publisher didn't like, Twix 12 and 20. They wanted to call it Pat Talks to Teens. Well, I wanted to do the book, but I didn't want to. It sounded pompous. It sounded presumptuous, like, sit down, I'm going to lecture you. No, no. It's going to be a conversation and conversational language. And I wanted to call it something different, Twix 12 and 20. They said, well, what does that mean? I'd say, what, what's between 12 and 20? Oh, the teens. Yes. <laughs> and they didn't like it. They said, it's hard to say. Even today, I have people say, you know, I had your book, Twix Teen and 20. I said, no, it was Twix 12 and 20. Well, but the book sold millions while I was still in college. It was the number one nonfiction bestseller for two years, right alongside Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking and Art Linkletter's Kids Say the Darndest Things. And my that was Twix 12 and 20. The proceeds of it all, I didn't know there were going to be any proceeds, but I dedicated them to, to a would-be startup Christian college in Villanova, Pennsylvania. Uh, an estate had been given by a wealthy family to a group, Christian group that wanted to build a Christian college. So I said, well, I'll give you any money that comes from this book. Turned out to be at last count over a, a million and a half in 1950s dollars. 
which wow. would be 10 times that amount. It helped the college uh, start. It became the Northeastern Institute for Christian Education, acronym NICE, which was a word I was trying to escape uh, because the parents and others were saying, why did you go, why did you like that nice Pat Boone instead of that Elvis Presley? You know, why don't you, you know, they were trying to promote me to their kids. Well, the kids like me already because of my rock and roll, but nice, I wanted to quit calling me nice. That's not exciting. I mean, Elvis is not married and he's available. And I'm married having a kid a year for four years. When I graduated from college at, 50, at 23, I was on the cover of TV Guide in my cap and gown because I'm graduating and you open it up and there's a picture of my wife, Shirley, and our four daughters all come separately, four daughters, and we're both still 23 years old. All of this happened so fast. Well, I appreciate the fact that your whole career, I mean, you know, we would probably define Pat Boone as nice, wholesome, godly. Yeah, um, that's not commercial, though. No, no, it's not. But overall, it outlasts everything else. And yeah, it has. Yes. And that leads me into your recent book called If the Eternal Choices We Must All Make. What is that about? I'm I'm so glad you asked that because it's the most, I've written other books that were million sellers. I wrote, I mean, literally the first book sold millions hardcover, millions more hard, uh, softcover, went into many languages around the world. Then another book did the same thing called A New Song, which had to do with a spiritual growth uh, uh, milestone called the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which is, is something that uh, it, it is scriptural, of course, but not everybody subscribes to it the way many other Christians do, which is seeking the infilling, the indwelling Holy Spirit to let him really motivate and take over your life. Yeah, your the choice. book of Acts. That's that's the yeah, infilling the of the Holy of Spirit. That's what happened and on, the, on the day of Pentecost when they said, we have killed the Messiah. What should we do? Peter says simply, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, Christians universally feel we got the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they don't know what that means and they don't realize it's not automatic. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's right. You have to ask the Holy Spirit to inhabit you, which is a fearful thing to do. It was fearful for me, even though with, with my aspirations, I thought if I say, Holy Spirit, come in and I want you to take over my life. I had a feeling I was going to be prompted to go to Tibet as a missionary <laughs> or, or to prove my faith by becoming a filling station attendant, give up my career. But no, there's another scripture let in First Corinthians, let a man bloom where he is planted or in the occupation in which he was called. Well, I was called as an entertainer and God let me know quickly that I was to bloom as an entertainer with that platform from which I could say things that preachers say, but uh, people don't know about. Well, now this last book, If, is my last effort to reach millions and millions of people who now today, according to Gallup and Barna and all the polls, don't go to church or a synagogue they don't worship in any outward way. They may pray or may not, but they're not sure anybody's listening. They don't read the Bible. They're not, and they would not buy a book if it's a religious book. They don't think they're interested. So on the cover of my book, there's a warning sign, not religious, a warning sign. And the covers, the four corners, I don't know if you've seen the cover. Yet. I have seen it. You see the four corners look singed as if it was pulled out of a book burning. And it says not religious, life or death, but down at the bottom, it says the eternal choice we all must make. And my point is we are making that choice. And I'm ready for all the naysayers and the cynics who are gonna say, you're saying if, if I don't do what you say in this book, I'm going to hell. I'm gonna say, no, you already are. <laughs> and what, yeah, and the Bible backs that up. It doesn't matter what I say because we're only given the one choice, if is the choice, no, no promise in the God, no, no promise in the Bible that doesn't come with an if. 
God offers us everything under the sun, everything he can create as he always did, if you want it. That's right. If you ask for it, if you're willing to seek it in the way he wants you to as a child of the living God who wants to respect his father and please his father and be blessed by his father. And those, all those blessings come with ifs. That's, you can that, check it out. That is so because... People to, yeah. No, go ahead, Pat. I'm just saying you can check it out because every blessing, even John 3.16, for God so loved, it seems to be so giving, the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting... What? What? What was that? Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the if in John 3.16. Yeah. It's in every promise of God if you're willing, but you have to know about it first. So uh, now more and more, half of Americans don't know anything about the Bible. And this is true around the world. They don't oh, yeah. know what it says. They don't know what God promises. And they're not sure they want to know. Or does it matter? And yeah. So just, but, you know, I was, doing, I was doing my devotion this morning and... And I'm reading along, and we are to focus on those eternal things, not the yes. things of this world, because they're only here temporary. You can't take it with you. Yeah. But every day we should always focus on the eternal, his love, which will never fail. His word never returns void. It's all, never you changes. know, never changes. And every word is a promise. Yes. And he himself is his word. I That's mean, right. God's Gospel of John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when you reject or abandon His Word, sadly, you're rejecting and abandoning Him. And, and, and in, um, somebody asked me recently, what is, you've written a lot of songs, more than most people know, what, what is your most important song that you ever wrote? Well, that would have to include the second Jewish national anthem, I wrote the words to Exodus, this land is mine, God gave this land to me. And they consider it their second national anthem, which of course, as a, I call myself an adopted Jew, I'm, I'm adopted into God's chosen family. But the song I wrote in one of my gospel albums is called Jesus is Lord. And I, I actually sing, and I hope to do it at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville soon. Um, I've, I've sung so many songs that just say nothing. Oh, they make a rhyme and pass some time away. But though the melodies may keep some people humming, they seldom will remember what they say. I've been searching for a song that has real meaning, that someday everyone will sing. When I took the time to look, I finally found it in God's book. And now this song to me means everything. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Because the Bible says at the end of all things, every knee will bow, knee will bow those who believe and those who didn't. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So that's my lyric. They're going to sing my lyric now or later. <laughs> well, what kind of advice do you have for all of the young people today? What it was always to every young person that looked at and said, how can I do what you've done? How can I make it in show business? How, how can I be successful? I say, do what I did. Make God your agent. What? Make God your agent. I said, well, an agent is one who may see some talent in you and sees what you want to do and want to help you. And he said, let me help you. I'll be your agent. And then if he opens a door for you to maybe walk through a, an opportunity. And if you go through and you have an opportunity, he helps you school for that and, and maybe make the most of that opportunity. And then if it succeeds and a career begins, he stays with you and tries to help you grow and, and establish a foundation. That's what your agent does. And God did that for me. And by the way, every agent expects at least 10%. <laughs> and, and don't forget to tithe, no matter at what stage. And, and so 
that's been the only advice I could give. Do anything that you can honorably do uh, and, and just seek it with all your heart and, and, you know, talent, develop your talent, dancing, singing, playing, whatever it is, acting. But do not be willing to sell your soul for it. Yeah. Uh, which people, many people in the entertainment business do because the influences of the world, especially the material and the world of entertainment, um, is, is taking you everywhere but toward God. Yeah, that's and, it. Uh, and you can become very successful and then look back, as I think happened with Elvis, and look like, hey, I, he, he told me, I, I wish I could go to church like you, but he said he couldn't because he'd be a distraction. I said, sign this church bulletin and, uh, and then let them take it to school. And they'll say, where'd you get that? Elvis or Pat Boone was at your church. Can I come and let it be an evangelical tool? And that's what Elvis, you know, said to me privately. I, then he said, do you know Oral Roberts? I said, yeah, I'd like to talk to him sometime. I said, let me give you a clue. Your name is Elvis. Presley, get on the phone to Tulsa, Oklahoma, say, connect me to Oral Roberts University. When somebody answers Oral Roberts University, say, this is Elvis Presley. I'd like to talk to Oral Roberts, please. And in 30 seconds, he'll be on the phone. He said, I can't do that. Socially, Elvis was always shy. You know, he had his buddies around him always. Oh, yeah. Even when they lived in Palm Springs, Priscilla told us, she came to Bible studies in her home, by the way which we had for entertainers along the way for years, wherever we, we could, and, and I was not traveling too much. And Priscilla came to some Bible studies. She said, you know, I feel like I'm living in a boy's dormitory. She said, I come up, get up in the morning in Palm Springs and the guys are out there playing pool and laughing and, and I'm just the girl. I'm the, <laughs> and my little baby has to be taken care of and Elvis, you know, it's glad to see us, but I feel like I'm living in a boy's dorm. That makes not, sense. And it's not conducive to marriage or family. It was the same at Graceland. And, uh, and so, of course, the marriage came apart. And, uh, and part of the reason was because, so Elvis, he came over before they were married. He would come over to our house on, uh, in, in Bel Air. We were both renting homes in Bel Air by then. And I had my four little girls and we'd be in the pool on a Sunday afternoon. And he'd just wander in. Uh, we didn't have gates then. I had to do that when Debbie's career took off. I had to have gates then because guys were coming un, uh, uninvited to try to get to Debbie. But Elvis would come in on Sunday afternoon and the girls, would, they just knew he was a friend of ours and they liked him and they'd jump up and run over and start getting up on him. He's, and I'd say, yeah, Pat, a girl, stop that. You're getting him all wet. Leave him alone, man. I like it. <laughs> and he did. He, was, he, he wanted what I had a wife and kids, a family, which he didn't have yet. I think Priscilla was probably already stashed at the Graceland, but <laughs> with his mama, I guess at that time, but she was there and uh, they did marry, but it just didn't last. And so, you know, Elvis experienced a lot of heartbreak and on the, right after uh, Lisa Marie passed, uh, I had been there at Graceland as I was in August of this year. Uh, August, no, that was last year. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it was just a couple of months ago, but, but it was August, the 45th anniversary of Elvis's passing. And it was the second time I'd been back there at the invitation of whoever puts that on to talk about my friendship and relationship with Elvis, which I did extensively. And Priscilla was there and Lisa Marie too. And, um, and so she, you know, I talked about the friendship we had. I was with Lisa Marie and she seemed very inward and uh, not happy. Uh, I mean, I just made a mental note of it, but I mean, I didn't ask why or, but she was polite, but just didn't see her mind seemed to be elsewhere. And then when I learned about a month later that she had passed and also I hadn't known that her own son had killed himself and that, and that had been on drugs. And I didn't know what was the case with Lisa Marie, but, but I had been with her a week before, after the time in, in, uh, in Memphis, where, where she and 
Priscilla were at a big screening of the Elvis film for people in the industry to influence their vote, you know, for the Academy Awards. Well, I was already determined I was going to vote for the film as best film and Austin Butler, nobody could have touched his performance as an actor. How in the world somebody else got best actor, although that performance <laughs> was also superior, but to, to make you believe he was the king of rock and roll and, and you're looking at him and he, he was phenomenal. Nobody could touch that as an acting performance or the film. But so Lisa Marie was there that night. And again, she's had a few words to say about her dad, but, but she was morose. We, my, my, my friend, my, my, uh, who's with me now, we, we had a little chat with her and took a picture, but she, but she was withdrawn and I was stunned to realize that she had passed. But my point is that I said publicly and that's something that was published a little bit that the price of sudden fame, sudden tumultuous, un unprecedented fame can be more dangerous than years of living in poverty. Mm, because wow. sudden fame can wipe you out as it has Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, uh, Kurt Cobain, on and on and on, and many of the rock and roll group stars I mean, money, fame, girls, alcohol, whatever, anything you want, indulge in all of it, and boom, you're gone. That's it. And with Elvis, it took a while, but his sudden fame, I think, influenced him from something he never recovered from, the death of his mama. Yeah. Because I think he realized, because even the film shows that she was concerned for him, even before he went to the Army, just the sudden success of his fame and and I think in his in his real grief about the death of his mom coming so soon that he he might have partly blamed uh, how he had sold himself so completely to the career. And if he hadn't been gone that much and that famous and all of that and caused her such concern, maybe she would still be around. Yeah, I don't know. But well, I'm just conjecturing. Well. Well, you you know, well you you've known him, and yeah. so I'm not going to dispute one word. I mean, I've I've had conversations. I've had an interview with Jerry Schilling, and um, we actually had an Elvis week last year on the show where we had Jerry, we had uh, Wink Martindale, and yeah, uh, T.G. Shepard, Richard Sturban, even Hal Lansky to talk about his father at Lansky Brothers. So. We got a ton of Elvis stories, but you have your own. You that's for clothing, sure. You mean the clothing place? Yes. Clothing place? Yeah. Yeah. I bought clothes there myself, though I didn't buy as outlandish stuff as Elvis did. He went for the, uh, really for the uh, black influence, which he was very much into. Uh, and, and, and he brought rhythm and blues. Well, he and I together, we were the midwives at the birth of rock and roll. We brought rhythm and blues, which was called race music over into the pop world and the original artist appreciated it though revisionists in history think we were somehow taking something from them or holding them back the reverse is true and they all know it little richard and fats and all have both said you know pat boone brought us over to an audience we didn't have then not just our music but us then as performers and he had us come on his television show and jesse jackson said something recently he said, I think Pat Boone did more for race relations with his music in the 50s than any other artist because he made it acceptable and not just the music, but the artist acceptable to a, to a wide audience that was not sure they wanted their kids to have anything to do with it. But if it's okay for Pat Boone, then... <laughs> well, you know, I, I've it. talked to uh, Nancy Olson Livingston and when her husband, Alan Livingston... He's the one that encouraged Nat King Cole to go solo. And she said, even back then, white people didn't realize that they were listening to a black artist. Right. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. but that, that happened a lot back then. So yeah, you it would have mattered. It would yeah. have mattered. In fact, that's why I left. You don't know about this. Probably 
not too many people do. Jamie Foxx hugged me for it recently, but um, in the late 50s, while I was doing my Pat Boone Chevy show, I was having all the black performers, not just the rock and rollers, but Nat King Cole himself and Ella Fitzgerald, I sang with her, and, uh, and Johnny Mathis and Sammy Davis and the Mills Brothers and all of them coming on my show. And I didn't realize it was sponsored by Chevrolet, and this was the third year. And I didn't realize that the dealers in the South were, were getting trouble from a lot of their uh, customers. They say, you know, we like Pat Boone, we like Chevy, uh, we like his music, but, you know, he keeps having those N-words uh, on his show all the time, and we may have to switch over to Ford. I didn't know this until Harry Belafonte called me. He was the biggest performer in the world at that moment. And I was a huge fan of his, um, but he called me on the phone one day in the office. He said, I've been watching your show and I like the way you treat your guests. Would you like me to come on your show and we sing some songs together? I thought, well, are you kidding? Well, of course. I said, I'll have my folks contact your folks. And, um, and I did in the next meeting, the production meeting with Chevrolet and ABC. And, and, uh, and I said, you're not gonna believe it. Harry Belafonte called, he wants to come on the show. And they, and they looked at me with these sober looks. You're gonna to have to say no. I said, why? Well, you know, he's, he's making this, these civil rights moves and, and you didn't know it, but you know, Chevrolet is already hurting because we're having so many black performers on. And if you have Harry Belafonte on, that's gonna, we may lose the sponsorship of Chevrolet. And I was, wow. and so we're gonna to have to thank him, but I was stunned and I just backed off and they went ahead to another subject. Then I said, wait a minute, come, and I came back to the subject. I said, look, it says it's the Pat Boone Chevy show. If I have to say no, I'm a Southerner, I understand the problem, but if I have to say no to the biggest entertainer in the world, Harry Belafonte, then it's not the Pat Boone show. And I'm gonna to have to ask you to get somebody else to take the show from here. They said, you're gonna walk off your show because I said, it's not because of that. Look, I grew up in the South. I was born in Florida, raised in Nashville. My folks, I have prejudiced family, but I'm not gonna be part of it. And to say no to Harry Belafonte, no thanks. So they said, they said, uh, well, look, if we have them come on, can you guarantee there won't be any even subtle uh, civil rights statements? I said, look, the fact that he and I are singing together as friends and brothers is the way it's going to look. That's all. That's all the statement. And I'll, I'll explain it to Harry. I'm sure he'll understand. Well, it didn't happen because it was toward the end of my third year and I just didn't renew. I, I abandoned the show and went to specials instead where I wouldn't have to worry about who I might have as guests on my TV specials. So I abandoned the Chevrolet show. And, and Jamie Foxx recently, I was coming in a health club at dusk, it was almost dark. And he, he was coming out, getting into an Escalade. He was leaving and I was coming in. And, uh, and I heard him say, Pat, is that Pat Boone? And, and I said, yeah, he got out. He said, let me ask you something. And he, he said, was this true? And he said, you walked off your Chevrolet show because they wouldn't let you have Harry Belafonte on. I said, yeah, but how did you know? I don't talk about it. In fact, he didn't know this, that he says, well, he said, can I hug you? He said, doing it now, it'd be no big deal. <laughs> he said, but uh, it wouldn't even happen. But, but he said, that was what? I said, it was 59, 1959. And, uh, and he said, I got to hug you, and, he, and we did hug. But he didn't know that in 1960, uh, the government in South Africa suspended apartheid, so I would come and do my concerts there for the 10 days that I was there. And then when, when I came home, the curtain of apartheid fell back down, and no other artist, they did that for nobody for 10 years. Uh, I mean, Nelson Mandela was still in prison, but. They wanted me to come and I wouldn't do it unless uh, people who wanted to buy a ticket could come regardless of color. And I got death threats in Durban and Port Elizabeth and uh, up and down uh, uh, and certainly Johannesburg and even into Salzburg, 
northern Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe, but only on the conditions that anybody who wanted to come could buy a ticket and come, and they did. But so they suspended apartheid for me uh, for the 10 days I was there, and then it fell back down. But, and it was 10 years, I guess, before it, uh, before I went back with my daughter, Debbie, and she had this record of you light up my life at that point. And uh, we, you know, anybody who wanted to come could come by then. But those things, those were stands that I took back then, which nobody knows about, because I was not going to publicize them, was going to talk about them. But then when Jerry, I mean, Jesse Jackson brought that up in his own show on the Rainbow Coalition show, because I had done this album recently and was promoting it with Santita, his daughter, on the show um, of, of, of R&B classics with the original performers, which, again, you probably don't know about, because I haven't had the marketing avenues of some of these albums that I've done. But this R&B classics, We Are Family, I did new songs, not their songs myself, but I was doing them with them new but very uh, derivative versions of their songs, Tears of a Clown with Smokey Robinson, We Are Family with Sister Sledge, um, uh, went to D Detroit and recorded with the Four Tops, Levi Stubbs, Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch, all these songs I recorded, Way of the World with Earth, Wind and Fire, Maurice and Verdine, White and their musicians, uh, Celebration with Cool and the Gang, and I went to Augusta and recorded Papa's Got a Brand New Bag with James Brown. Hey, hey, Pat's got a brand new bag. Get down, Pat, get down. I mean, so I, they all, I was surprised they would do these songs with me, but they did because they knew that I had espoused rhythm and blues music. Of course, yes, I was doing my own versions. I wasn't trying to sound like Little Richard or Fats uh, or any of the others. I was... In fact, I was doing solo versions of group songs, <laughs> but I was trying to capture the excitement of their records. Well, I have to say this, Pat, because if the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is listening right now, you are doing this man a disservice because this Pat Boone is American music history and you, Pat, belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and every music hall of fame that this country has to offer. Your name needs to be in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've sure done a lot of it. And, you know, on that one point, I thought, sure, when Paul Schaefer was doing the uh, all the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame bands, and he still is, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I thought, well, when he hears my my record with James Brown, with uh, uh, with all the other artists, with Earth, Wind and Fire and with Sister Sledge and the Four Tops singing their songs with them then he's going to know I belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I helped some of those artists come across the gulf that separated rhythm and blues from pop music. But I never heard from him. I, I, I hope he heard. Maybe I hope he didn't hear it. I, I hate to think he heard those versions, which are really good versions, just like my versions of the heavy metal were really good versions. of, And the, uh, the, other, the artists whose records I did loved them, like Metallica, love well, Ozzy Osbourne liked my version of Crazy Train so much that when he did his TV show, he and Sharon made my version of their song, Crazy Train, their theme song. Crazy, hey, that's how it goes. That's my version at the beginning of his, of his show, not his version, my version. That so, is amazing. I mean, these are things people don't know, but because, I mean, how could they? But uh, but all I, these things if you are, write an autobiography, it's going to be the it's going to be the size of an encyclopedia. Well, I've already written two. <laughs> <laughs> One was after 25 years. The other is we didn't have a publisher for it. We still don't have a publisher for a coffee table type book called Pat Boone's America 50 years. And it's got 200 pictures and all the stories. And I'm hoping that if, because if we the publisher, a gospel publisher, didn't treat it right when it first came out at Christmas. They called it a, a pop culture journey through five decades. Well, at Christmas time, that's not what people were looking for. Right. At Christmas time. And, and when it didn't sell what they expected, they just, they quit. 
And so I, I said, what are you going to do with the book? Well, we're probably going to sell it to uh, use books and rendering when they just use the paper. And, you know, I said, I want to buy the whole inventory. I want the copyright and the inventory. And I bought 14,000 books, about five, 6,000. I've been using them as giveaways at, for contests and all kinds of things and raising funds. But, but the book itself, uh, telling at least 50 years of my life with 200 pictures, and I wrote every word of it, including the captions for the pictures, having fun with those, because I love to write and I do it conversationally. And the book, If, which is the current and maybe last book, uh, maybe, because I, I keep thinking I've done the last of something, but and then I turn around and do something like it again. But but if is written very conversationally to people who don't think they want to read a religious book, yeah. but it's it's about their life. It's about their life and death choice that yeah, that's they're making, it. whether they know it or not. Well, Pat, and, uh, you you know you have given me so much time today, and and I know you are one very busy 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 man. Is there anything left on your bucket list? <laughs> well, the book. The uh, yes, I, I need to do something with another song called Yehoshua. I want to thank you, Pat, for being on the program. My my goodness, uh, it's got to be one of my favorite interviews of all time. And you have the the probably one of the longest histories in show business that um, that I know of. But you are definitely the man. And uh, again, I want to thank you for your time. And ladies and gentlemen, you got to check out his brand new. True Blue Country hit, Grits, and be one of the 2 million and growing monthly listeners on Spotify of Pat Boone's music. And you can also hear Pat Boone on his weekly SiriusXM radio show, The Pat Boone Hour on Channel 72, which is the 50s Gold Channel. And don't forget, go to patboone.com and get your copy of If, The Eternal yes. Choices we must all make, because ladies and gentlemen, we all have a choice to make. Make sure you make the right one. And as Pat has said it, I agree. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we need to serve him, and we need to focus on things eternal. And Pat, again, I want to thank you for the honor and the pleasure of talking with you today. Well, Ward Bond, I didn't get to talk to your namesake. But uh, I'll send you the check for this after we're off. Oh, you're very, very welcome. And ladies and gentlemen, hey, stick around because, hey, I'll be right back with more.